You're listening to the Living Presence Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from East Gwillimbury, Ontario. Welcome to the Living Presence Podcast for Sunday, April 15th. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am the Community Minister with the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada in East Gwillimbury, except I am not in East Gwillimbury right now. At this moment, I am sitting at a dining room table in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I've been on study leave for the past week taking classes at the Center for Christian Studies. I had a little Zoom recorder packed and ready to go but I've realized that I forgot to pack the cord needed to get the audio from the recorder to my computer. So here I am recording this podcast into my phone, and I'm crossing my fingers that the audio is going to come out okay. I've been reading all of the reports about the large storm that has moved through south-central Ontario, which has been a storm so severe that even the church services had to be cancelled across the area. I grew up in a rural community near Orillia, Ontario, and I can't for the life of me remember a time when we needed to cancel Sunday worship. That's how crazy this storm has been. So to folks listening back home, I hope everything is okay, that you are safe and warm, and I also hope that people have been able to check in on others living alone or who might have needed assistance during the storm with food and other necessities. It feels like so much has happened in the world since our last episode. A lot of tragedy. There was the bus crash in India where at least 27 people have died, a chemical attack in Syria, and then the U.S.-led airstrikes that, depending on whom you speak with, were either a much-needed response to a regime killing its own citizens or unnecessary posturing from an administration that seems far too trigger-happy for comfort. Regardless of whether the response is justified, the fact that the U.S. ambassador of the United Nations said that the United States is locked and loaded has to be cause for concern. And then, of course, there are the 16 young people from the Humboldt Broncos Hockey Club who were killed in Saskatchewan. I grew up in the kind of small town where if you were a boy, you played hockey. I have three younger brothers, and my parents would travel for three hours at times in order to take my brothers to their games. All of my male friends played hockey, and my husband, who grew up in Saskatchewan, played against the Humboldt teams. There is something about the small-town hockey Canadiana mystique that grips me in exactly the same way it has grabbed many others who have similar life experiences. Those young men and young women could have been my brothers. They could have been my friends. And it was a very quick emotional movement for me to understand the outpouring of grief that has arisen from across the country. Often when people are touched by tragedy, they look for something tangible that they can do or offer. And often this means money. 
if collective grief can be measured by money, then it's clear there are a lot of people who are grieving hard right now. When I checked the latest numbers on the GoFundMe campaign for the humbled Broncos this afternoon, over $11.5 million has been raised so far, from almost 130,000 people. That is an awful lot of money, and very, very generous. But that amount of money being brought in because of such a profound tragedy can be very complicated. For one thing, there is just the logistical issues around how the money is divided and distributed. There's the discomfort with the fact that hundreds of thousands of dollars will never replace a child who has died. And then there's the very quantifiable measure with a monetary value placed on these lives that's difficult not to compare to other lives lost under tragic circumstances such as the men who died or were injured in the Quebec mosque attack last year, one of whom is paralyzed and in need of financial assistance. Aymar Dabali was paralyzed from the shoulders down when he tried to draw the gunman away from the other worshippers. In three months, his GoFundMe campaign has raised about $5,500 of a $200,000 goal. Also, as I move into a learning circle next week about right relations with our Indigenous friends, it has not gone unnoticed that the outpouring of grief for their daughters and their sisters is nowhere near the collective grief for these mostly white men. Some of us have been exploring whether there is racism at play here, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Or maybe the fact that I feel it as nuanced is my own dominant cultural perspective at play. I'm wondering about the thinking piece of conscious belief. Few people in my life would voice that the lives of the men who were murdered at the mosque or the indigenous women who are missing or murdered are any less valuable than the people who died in the humbled bus crash. But it's kind of like our thoughts haven't moved down into our heart or maybe into our gut would actually be a better place. It hasn't sunk down yet. And that's some very deep soul-searching work we have to ask as to why. Am I saying the Humboldt team's deaths are any less of a tragedy? No, of course not. The whole thing is just awful. My student colleagues and I held a moment of silence at 10 a.m. yesterday as the funeral for Brody Hines began. He was an active member of the United Church in Humboldt, and the minister, Reverend Brenda Curtis, is an alumni of my school. My son wore a jersey to school on Thursday, and I still think that any of the people on that bus could have been one of my people. But so are all the others whom I don't so easily see myself in. That's the work I think I need to do. To see another and recognize where the you and the me and the one are all enmeshed. I wonder if that's where the gut reaction of, whoa, this is just so fundamentally wrong that I have to do something, can be sustained.
in the stories that we have of the man called Jesus, this is kind of exactly what he does. And there is also a cost to this kind of investment in the other. Something much deeper than $11.5 million. It's letting go of a lot that we take for granted about the ideas of who we are. But I think we need to start doing more of this because we are all in this together. I'm interested to hear what others think about this issue. The whole topic is honestly something we are talking about and working through a lot in my learning circle. You can leave your comment on our website or on our Facebook page or email me at hi at livingpresenceministry.org. I'd really love to hear from you. On this week's episode, we'll be hearing my buddy Alex read a passage from the Gospel of John where Jesus appears to the disciples a few hours after the tomb is found empty. Spoiler alert, Thomas misses it. Our second reading is not really a reading, but a song by Canadian folk duo Two Roads Home. We'll also hear music from Canadian alt-folk group Ursidae, as well as Australian indie folk rock band Fruit. This is their song Peace from their 2005 album Burn. This is where I find 
This is the place where I find you. This is the place where I find you. And this is the place where I find hope meets fulfillment. And this is the place where I find you. My name is Alex Van Kazel. Um, I'm coming to you from downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. Today I'm going to be reading um, from chapter 20, John, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus appears to Thomas. Now, Thomas. One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my fingers where the nails did and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are unwritten, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. days, humble and modest, but I was amazed, summed it all up in a walk in the woods, looked down at his work and he saw it was good. Never been one to laugh at the wind, never been one to start over again, take what I learn and I turn and I go, back of my mind always tells me it's so. These are hard, hard times These are hard, hard times Is it enough to say Hard times demand an open mind? Well, I had a friend at the end of his road We had grown distant, I guess he lost hope Drove his old truck to the edge of a field Say goodbye to my girls and my Sarah so sweet Register everything, join the parade Sit in your cubicle, make no complaint Oil the machine, cover each base And make your bones both the mortar and paste These are hard, hard times These are hard, hard times Is it enough to say Hard times demand an open mind we could have stood on the edge and bowed to the tide We could have laughed in the face of the things we're denied Instead we ran in a thousand directions Found ourselves nowhere but somewhere to hide
That was Two Roads Home with their song Nowhere But Somewhere to Hide from their album Sweet Shadows. You can find Abby and Brian online at www.tworoadshome.com as well as on iTunes. So here we are. As Alex just read for us, it's still Easter. We're still on day one. The doors of the house where the disciples met were locked. Alone and huddled, worried they'll be targeted next, they try to make sense of the past days. It's difficult to comprehend just how much the disciples' world would have been turned upside down. Fear and pain and doubt close in on them. Fear of the authorities who had collaborated with the empire to crucify their leader. Pain in the loss of a friend who had called them by name. Doubt in the very nature of reality. The stories of a dead man rising can't really be true, can they? I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one with friends who possess a twisted sense of humor. But each year I feel like I'm wading through dozens of zombie Jesus Facebook memes during the Easter season. Devoid of identity and mission, leaderless and fractured, the disciples close off from the world. But then Jesus shows up and he offers them greeting. Notice there is no mention of the door opening. And they don't get that it's Jesus right away. So he shows them his wounds. And then the party starts. How do they party? Jesus starts breathing on them. Awesome stuff here, guys. I had a funny moment last week when my three-year-old heard me working with this passage. And when I got to the part about Jesus breathing, he said, But Mama, why did Jesus breathe on them? One thing that's really hit home for me since becoming a parent is that scripture is really weird. Because kids have a great way of pointing out all of the weirdness. All I could say to him was, Honey, that was Jesus' way of helping his friends see that he was there, and he gave them a little piece of himself to take out into the world. I was really crossing my fingers that this answer would be good enough. It was late in the day, and I didn't know if I had the energy for explaining ruah, which is a Hebrew word and concept of spirit. From the story of Noah and the ark we heard a few weeks ago, ruah is the spirit or wind that God breathed to recede the floodwaters. Now Jesus is breathing upon his friends, imparting upon them his spirit with instructions to go out into the world. Unsurprisingly, my explanation was not good enough for my three-year-old. Yeah, but Mama, did Jesus breathe fire like a dragon? And then I just became completely distracted with how cool a fire-breathing Jesus would be. But back to the room. Not everybody was there. Thomas was missing. 
Maybe somebody had to go out for a snack run and he lost rock, paper, scissors. John doesn't really explain why Thomas wasn't there. And he also doesn't really explain why Jesus couldn't have stuck around a little longer until Thomas came back. Where where did he actually have to be? What does a guy who has recently risen actually have to do? Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. And because of these words, Thomas is not known by some cool nickname like The Rock or The Beloved, but Doubting Thomas. And that seems really unfair. Poor Thomas. I mean, I'm sure he wants to believe that Jesus has returned. But my goodness, maybe it just hurts too much to get his hopes up. Maybe he's only really just hanging on in the midst of this tragedy. Because remember, we're only a couple of days after Jesus' death. A dreadfully violent and devastating death at that. And it's not that Thomas doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe his friends. And what reason does Thomas have to believe the disciples anyway? Because Jesus returns eight days later, and they're still locked in a room. They are still afraid. And there is absolutely nothing to indicate that they have just experienced something transformational. There's no indication that they've gone out. Like the song from Two Roads Home that we just heard, They are nowhere but somewhere to hide, as if they are so scattered and the task they've been assigned is so huge that they don't even know where to begin. They're paralyzed by just how much has gone wrong. I've been thinking of this a lot over the past couple of weeks against the backdrop of everything I spoke about earlier in the show. The gas attack, the airstrikes, the bus crash in India, the bus crash in Saskatchewan, an attack in Germany, being confronted with remarks by both Donald Trump and Doug Ford, and feeling really stuck in this space of, I don't know what to do. And when we don't know what to do, the easiest thing is to do nothing. I also think of this with some of our churches. The United Church, like most mainline denominations in Canada, is going through a period of ever-dwindling numbers. There was a time when almost everybody in the country went to church. Now people either have other faith communities or organized religion in general is just not appealing to a large segment of the population. There are a whole lot of reasons for this, and many of them are very valid. But as church after church closes its doors, those that are left are often moving into austerity mode. They are operating out of scarcity and fear, and there are less and less resources being put into the community and into outreach. And so much like the disciples, we've become paralyzed. And so why should anybody believe that there is something important and transformative going on within our church buildings if they're not seeing any of that played out in the world? Like Thomas, who couldn't believe his friends' good news because they remained hidden, afraid, and paralyzed, 
it's difficult for those on the outside to see what's so great about belonging to a community of faith, a community that claims to follow the ways of this Jesus guy. Now in context, this story is being written to the emerging Christian community. People thought Jesus was coming back pretty much any time. This story is less about relaying an account of events that actually occurred than giving instruction to those who are reading. You can think of this like an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where Will breaks the fourth wall and gives a big giant wink to a first-century Palestinian audience. He might as well be saying, you need to believe in Christ without seeing Christ. He's coming, don't worry, but until then, you've got to believe. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The good news is that although it takes a few tries, the disciples eventually do get it. They move out into the world to continue the transformational work that Jesus started. They continue his message of radical love and commitment to the other. Communities form and people are changed. And through the midst of chaos and sadness, I see people continuing to strive for goodness and change in the world. People like my friend and Rachel, who is campaigning to become a candidate for Toronto Centre and then the next provincial election. People who are working on the front line of our street and community ministries. And the many, many people who have shown an outpouring of support and love for those affected by the humbled bus crash. Because despite my wonderings voiced at the beginning of the show, love and support is a good thing. We are still doing something. We are not hiding. And that is an Easter story, if ever there was one. Say we got our heads in the clouds, my.
That was Ursiday with their song Winter Wanderer. You can find them online at www.ursidaymusic.com. In our Love for the World segment this week, I'd like to lift up Adam Harold, Connor Lucan, Evan Thomas, Jacob Leicht, Jackson Joseph, Logan Boulay, Logan Hunter, Logan Schatz, Stephen Wack, Parker Tobin, Brody Hines, Darcy Haugen, Glenn Dokison, Mark Cross, Tyler Bieber, Dana Bronze, and the family, friends, communities, frontline workers, and spiritual care providers of everybody affected by the Humboldt Broncos bus crash last week. After the media leaves the communities and reality settles in, it's my hope that those affected will have the supports they need to move through this very challenging grieving process. I'd like to lift up the victims of the chemical attack in Syria last week, as well as the response of airstrikes. Also the children who died on the school bus in India. I wish I could read their names for you, but their lives are no less valuable and sacred. I'd also like to offer prayers for Jenny Lynn Reed, Mike Grolowski, and their respective families. Mike suffers from type 1 diabetes, and last week, while suffering an insulin reaction that caused him to enter Highway 11 near Aurelia in the wrong direction, he hit Jenny Lynn's vehicle, which also carried her two daughters. Both Mike and Jenny Lynn are in hospital, and I hope and pray for their recoveries and healing. I'm also thinking of everybody affected by the ice storm this weekend. I'm thinking of the inquiry of murdered and missing Indigenous women, as well as Ayman Durbali, who is still seeking assistance for medical costs after he was shot during the Quebec City mosque attack last year. I have linked his GoFundMe campaign into the show notes if anybody would like to help. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week, again on my phone, looking at Psalm 23. I know you know the one. It's got sheep and pastures and a whole bunch of lying around. We'll be looking at what wisdom old words can bring to new times, as well as discovering some great new music. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is brought to you by the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.livingpresenceministry.org. Hey 